It is time for Economy Tutor. We're going to get you some insights into some of the major economic uh, issues uh, of the past week. Very pleased to have joining us our tutor from Catholic University of Korea, uh, Professor Yang Jun-suk. Professor Yang, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Morning. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, Japanese trade restrictions on Korea. It kind of once again made news because Korea has now asked uh, Japan for a uh, an official reply to some of these uh, so-called uh, terms and conditions that they have placed uh, in re- releasing these uh, exports uh, to Korea. Uh, it's, there's an economic component to this, but there's very much a, a social and political component to yeah, it. I would as say well. that there's more political right. and diplomatic component to this. Right, and we'll economics. talk about both, yeah. obviously. So, just some background for people who uh, may not have been following along. Uh, in July last year, Japan placed export restrictions unilaterally on three chemical products, uh, which are crucial for Korea's semiconductor production. So, these products are photoresist, fluorinated polyamides, and Hydrogen fluoride, which uh, more, I think, generally known in Korean media as etching gas. The reason Japan uh, cited was that Korea was no longer a, a trusted partner, that they could not be sure about the national security implications of uh, Korea potentially leaking this to maybe uh, nefarious regimes. Uh, this was deemed to be a, uh, a an illogical argument on the, the side of Japan here in Korea. So uh, Japan had had a whitelist, and Korea was one of those countries in that whitelist. Uh, Korea was taken off of that uh, subsequently, even though it has been found later that uh, Korea actually has a much more secure uh, method of, <laughs> of keeping these uh, materials than other countries, including Japan itself, yeah, yeah. Uh, ironically. Uh, so th- that was how um, the initial row had begun. Uh, the government here, of course, had to respond, and uh, they were quite stern in doing so. The uh, private sector also had to scramble to figure out other alternative means to, to get get these supplies because, again, semiconductors being an engine of the export economy here, a crucial part of Korea's economic growth. Um, And then what we had that ensued was a lot of uh, political bickering as well as a a grassroots movement to uh, boycott a a wider array of Japanese products and goods. So that's sort of like the 30,000-foot view of the situation, Professor Yang. Uh, we're, like, we're 10 months into this, so it, it, it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, let's, let's talk about maybe the economic aspects of Korea's um, semiconductor industry then. They're, they are a very, very uh, prolific chip maker. Um, we all know about Samsung. We all know about the SK Hynix. Um, so what, what exactly has happened with uh, trying to secure these sources from other means? Okay, well, they had a review of how the Japanese trade restrictions affected the semiconductor industry earlier in the year around February. And what they found was that the uh, Korean semiconductor industry reported virtually no effect on production from these trade restrictions. Uh, Most manufacturers found alternate sources or alternate means to get around these problems. For hydrogen fluoride, import sources switched from Japan to China for uh, uh, higher uh, capacity uh, semiconductors. For lower capacity semiconductors, they found that less pure hydrogen fluoride, which they can get from elsewhere, worked well enough. and some Korean firms like Soulbrain were successful in manufacturing a very pure version of hydrogen fluoride uh, that's required for higher capacity mm. chips. Uh, so uh, we've been uh, it had the uh, 
effect has been minimal. And then for etching gas, domestic sourcing is beginning to come online, and some of this gas is being imported from the United States. Uh, there are similar reports for photoresist. There are some domestic sources now coming online from places like Dongjin Semichem, and imports from uh, Europe and United States have been rising. According to Korea International Trade Association, the imports of photoresist from Belgium has risen by more than 1,000%. And then imports from Germany and U.S. have also risen by 66% and 15% respectively uh, in the second half of 2019. So we're getting our uh, required chemicals from uh, alternate sources. And uh, also, in order to avoid bad publicity, Japan has been allowing some exports of the uh, photoresist. Uh, but even so, Korea, uh, the uh, share of Japan in Korea's imports of photoresist has been falling from 92% in the first half of 2019 before the trade restriction to 85% in the second half of 2019. So at least according to some Korean government officials, Korea is on track to stop its dependence on Japan by the end of the year. Okay, so I know that uh, in the lead up to this controversy, uh, there were some sectors of of, uh, the Korean economy as well as the the political circles saying that this is actually a great opportunity. We can actually uh, develop these homegrown uh, supplies uh, by ourselves and be completely self-sufficient in this. Uh, Prior to this, the Chebols had found it... uh, kind of, I guess, more convenient, just they're supplying this, they're, they're a reliable supplier, their quality's uh, up to par, so we can just continue to source the materials from Japan. Uh, that has changed the situation. Are, are you saying then, um, regardless of what actually happens with this dispute, which now has become more of like a, a, a diplomatic sort of uh, face, face-off, that uh, it might be rendered moot that uh, Korea is you say on track, that uh, they may not need this in the long term anymore? Well, I think eventually you'll go back to at least partial Japanese uh, sourcing because, well, uh, they have such an advantage in this area. But I don't think we'll go back to the era where we're entirely dependent on Japan. And one of the reasons why these Korean companies were able to develop so quickly was that they found that uh, because the Japanese sources were cut off, they had no competition. Mm. And also, because the situation was so desperate, a lot of the uh, uh, regulatory hurdles, for example, uh, environmental regulations, which are too tough, they were at least perhaps not removed, but at least uh, weakened a bit. So a lot of things happened because they were pressured. And, well, uh, it does show that Koreans under pressure – uh, can usually get around problems. Right, we've seen that with COVID-19 uh, as well. And so uh, if you kind of dangle that uh, carrot of, uh, we're going to give you mass volume of millions and millions of dollars of orders if you can uh, somehow mobilize this, and uh, it's, it's going to be pretty much a, a blue ocean, right? right? There's going to be no competition on this. And, right. so. and I think Korea learned this lesson perhaps about a year earlier than the, uh, a lot of other countries. What we've seen during the COVID crisis is that having too, uh, being too dependent on one source, uh, mm. China or mm. Japan, uh, in a period where you can have these global epidemics is not are very healthy for your global supply chain. Right. It's, it's like investing, right? Diver- <laughs> diversifying your portfolio to make sure that you have high risk and, and of course, uh, right. kind of the more blue chip uh, safe assets. Okay. Well, let's talk about then the diplomatic aspect of this then, Professor Yang. Uh, Korea did initiate a case in the World Trade Organization, WTO, against these uh, export restrictions by Japan. They had kind of a bit of a winning streak in the WTO with other uh, Cases of dispute, including that fisheries uh, import restriction and what have you. What's the status with the WTO? Okay, well, uh, 
to uh, we need to extend this to what's called a GSOMIA, which is a, a military information okay. sharing uh, mechanism. Uh, Korea did file a case with the WTO, and as a response to Japanese trade restriction, Korea refused to extend this GSOMIA agreement. And the United States really wanted Korea and Japan to have this information sharing agreement. So what happened was there's a lot. Of, there was a lot of uh, pressure, diplomatic pressure by the United States, and Korea agreed to conditionally extend the uh, GSOMIA agreement for six months and drop the WTO case. The, uh, Japan, uh, decide, uh, Japan said that they will not extend the uh, export ban, export uh, control over what they had at that point. Yeah. Uh, so they sort of compromised on it, uh, and the WTO case was dropped. But I think WTO case did some good because they really had a bad case in the WTO. Mm. Uh, they could not, I think, prove that Korea did have those security faults. Uh, and uh, Japan did say that they were going to make uh, neutral decisions. They were going to make objective decisions on further exports of these chemicals depending on Korea's security considerations. And as you mentioned, Korea actually had a better security mechanism than Japan. So they ended up uh, approving some exports of uh, photoresist and some other chemicals, and they didn't expand the uh, export ban beyond those three chemicals. So in Uh, So even though Korea dropped the WTO case, I think it did Korea good uh, to file it in the first place. Right. So it was uh, a bit of uh, pressure, we can say, and and maybe kind of securing more leverage uh, on our side in terms of the negotiating table, uh, the WTO case being kind of looming over Japan. But at the same time, as you say, and maybe we'll talk about a little more later, is that uh, Jisami is probably the more decisive card because I think a lot of people did not expect Korea would actually risk perhaps even annoying uh, its main security partner, the U.S., to actually threaten to pull out of GSOMIA. Uh, They indeed indicated a willingness to do so despite the fallout from that, which kind of showed Japan, hey, we're pretty serious about this, and you guys better kind of come up with your own sort of reasonable stance on the issue. But let's talk about something else that has nothing to do with how the diplomats decide things, how the security officials uh, decide about GSOMIA and W2 and whatnot, just the grassroots campaign that started here in Korea. There was a lot of public anger. Uh, as to be expected with what Japan was doing, trying to bully, uh, perceived to be bullying uh, Korea in, in, in terms of these export restrictions. So the, the, the boycott movement started uh, initially with some products that were coming into Korea that were usually popular, but um, uh, were consumable goods that had other alternatives. And then, of course, these uh, decisions to basically uh, forego all travel Uh, and anything to do with uh, Japan as far as uh, that is concerned. What happened there? Okay, well, something like beer. Uh, Japanese uh, beer was really popular in Korea, but toward the uh, second half of last year, Korean consumption of Japanese beer basically disappeared. Mm. Uh, So if you look at the uh, second half of 2019, uh, Korean exports to Japan fell by 7.8%. Japan's exports to Korea fell by 14.6%. So at least in terms of changes, uh, Japan got a hit a lot harder than Korea. Right. Uh, they're not all consumption goods. In fact, consumption, uh, consumption good is actually uh, Very small fairly component. small yeah. part of uh, Korea-Japan trade, but still. Uh, one thing we should point out to our listeners is that Korea 
chronically runs a fairly sizable trade deficit with Japan. Uh, And you normally think of these flashy goods, right, or things that we know about. But it's really the unsexy items like etching gas, these components, that that is why Japan has that relative comparative trade advantage. Right. It's uh, like what's happening with Korea and Japan. Uh, Korea and China. Korea is supplying all these high-tech parts to China uh, for Chinese exports. uh, And Korea is in the uh, opposite side with uh, Korea-Japan trade. So uh, Korea is importing a lot of these uh, high-tech parts. And I think what happened here was that a lot of Korean uh, buyers uh, got started to get scared. What if the export uh, restriction uh, came to us? Hmm. So they started uh, finding alternate sources as well. So the uh, Korean exports to Japan fell by $2 billion, but Japan's exports to Korea fell by $7 billion. And... uh, Uh, The uh, three chemicals that we were talking about, they're actually very crucial, but they're not that expensive. We don't uh, don't import a lot because just a little bit of these chemicals really go a long way in production. Uh, So a lot of Korean importers started finding alternate uh, alternate sources. So uh, Korea still does run a trade deficit with Japan, but in 2019, it was $19.2 billion, which was the lowest since 2003. And this year, the uh, trade deficit with Japan for uh, up to March is only $4.1 billion mm. as opposed to $5 billion last, uh, last year uh, for the first three months. Uh, so uh, we're trying to uh, lower our uh, dependence on Japan, not only for these three chemicals, but I think all, uh, sub- all uh, intermediate parts right. overall. And uh, also, you, uh, we mentioned tourism. It doesn't really matter now because of the COVID virus. But toward the end of last year, a lot of the uh, regional uh, Japanese governments were really complaining that uh, their economy was taking a big hit because Korean tourists were not going to Japan. Yeah, and so I think... When we looked at from the Japanese point of view, they were initially, at least when you're hearing the uh, officials uh, talk about it, they were kind of putting on a pretty brave face. Ah, that doesn't matter. That, <laughs> Koreans don't drink our beer. That's a very small part of our market share of uh, the global sale of Japanese beer. And then they said, you know, tourism to Tokyo and Osaka, that's going to be a blip on the radar if less Koreans come. However, it is because of this longstanding sort of uh, cultural connection that the two countries have. Koreans tend to go to these more kind of off-the-beaten mm-hmm. path type of destinations in, Korea, in Japan, these rural areas that were very much dependent on uh, Korean tourism, and that kind of dried to a halt, obviously now even more so with the COVID-19 pandemic. But because of that, uh, a lot of, they were starting to get some grumblings from uh, local people there, and also these companies that supply these um, materials to, j- j- to Korea, basically telling the Japanese government, cut this off, this is not helping us. Right. Uh, now, a lot of these companies and a lot of these regions, well, if you look at the, uh, their revenues and if they look at the uh, tourist revenues, they really don't form a lot of overall Japanese GDP. But if you look at regional aspect of it uh, and just the number of these small-sized companies which are selling these intermediate parts to Korea, there's a lot of them. So even though it may be the uh, economic effect may be fairly small, just because of the numbers, the political effect is pretty big. Right. 
And let's go back full circle now. The reason why we're discussing this today, Professor Yang, this uh, 10-month uh, period of uh, trade disputes. Uh, Korea has now said, Japan, you need to come out with an official response here. We've satisfied all your uh, conditions that you've placed, so-called. And uh, we need to get you back on board with uh, putting Korea back on the whitelist. Uh, what's going on? Okay, well, Japan is keeping mum right now. Uh, and I think part of the reason is that uh, their stated excuse was not the real reason for putting this uh, export restriction. It actually has to do with uh, uh, Japanese uh, steel companies using Korean forced labor during the Japanese occupation of Korea 1910 to 1945. The uh, Supreme Court had ruled a couple of years ago uh, that uh, the the families and survivors of the Japanese forced labor had to pay compensation, uh, and uh, if the Japanese companies do not pay compensation, then the Korean courts and Korean government had the right to confiscate the uh, assets of these Japanese steel companies, which are located in the uh, in Korea. And uh, I th- the uh, reason. The government has never formally said that this was a reason because it's contrary to WTO and international spirit of international trade agreements. Right. Uh, but some uh, high-ranking officials did uh, imply it, and uh, some Japanese National Assemblymen did outright state it uh, that it was tr- uh, it was this a possibility of confiscation, uh, which um, uh, made Japan impose these export restrictions. And for this area. We haven't gotten anywhere. There, uh, uh, the uh, uh, families of the uh, Japanese forced labor workers, uh, the survivors, uh, they've been uh, pushing Korean government to proceed with confiscation uh, and uh, sales of these confiscated assets. But Korea has not really done that yet. It's sort of stuck in a uh, legal uh, limbo. And I think uh, so the both countries right now are in sort of a holding pattern. Uh, As long as things are in a holding pattern, I'm not sure it'll go anywhere. Uh, I think Japan will still want to keep a threat of export uh, restriction so that Korea does not confiscate and sell these assets. But Korea wants to... uh, wants Japan to pay for that uh, crimes that they did during colonialization. So as long as we don't go anywhere in this legal front, I don't think there will be too much changes. Korea has sort of asked Korea, uh, Japan, as you said, they've thrown a uh, card at them. Uh, we've satisfied all the problems, security problems that you had. So uh, you have to remove the export restriction. We'll have to see what kind of creative response Japan comes with to not proceed uh, with the uh, removal of the export restriction. Yeah, but bottom line, it does feel like it has not had the intended effect of uh, this is not the same Korea from the Park Jong-hee regime where we are very much dependent economically on, on other things like the U.S.'s largesse and also uh, Japan's uh, generosity. Uh, they can't be bullied anymore and it has not had the effect on the semiconductor industry. So bottom line, it does appear that uh, Samia is going to be a key card now going forward, and, and it's going to be, uh, I guess, uh, interesting to see how South Korea plays it, especially mindful of what the U.S. thinks.
Yeah, and uh, part of the uh, question is going to be that the uh, Abe administration, at least before the coronavirus, uh, he put a lot of political, uh, uh, political uh, backing into this export restriction, uh, but it didn't work. Right. Uh, so it'll have, we'll also have to see how this affects the credibility of the Abe administration. Right, and that unspoken quid pro quo you mentioned about uh, they wanted somehow the government here in Korea to subvert a very independent judiciary, a Supreme court that issued its own independent ruling uh, and and uh, try to uh, get that to a uh, verdict that was more to their liking, which obviously is not uh, something that a, uh, a freely democratic country uh, <laughs> tends to do. So uh, interesting uh, discussion here, uh, obviously a mix of ec- economics, politics, and diplomacy. Professor Young, but uh, you've been ably handling all three uh, subjects uh, very well for us, so we appreciate that. We hope you have a good weekend, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.